Well, if you got your Bibles, open up to 1 Thessalonians. That's where we're going to begin tonight, the book of 1 Thessalonians. Thessalonians is a very interesting book because it deals with a portion of end-time events. And so a lot of people, they, they kind of like the idea of going through 1 Thessalonians because, again, in dealing with end-time events, First and Second Thessalonians both have a few stories that they want to share with us. But it was because of some confusion that was going around in the church. And I, I told you earlier, the, the letters that are written to these churches are typically because they faced problems. They each had their own struggles. There was not a perfect church out there. And Thessalonica was no different. Now, it's interesting when you read the book of Thessalonians, you read in verse 1 where it says this. It says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, or Timothy, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins his introduction by introducing himself. Now, isn't it interesting the way we write letters? We write them completely different. We will say, dear so-and-so. Then we'll go into the body of the letter. And at the end of the letter, we sign our name sincerely or with love or all kinds of different salutations. But our name comes at the end of it. In biblical letters, they would write their name first. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonica. What they were trying to do is they were trying to establish what they were going to write. They were wanting to prepare them. They wanted them to see with what authority the letter came unto them. Now, it's interesting when you look at the beginning of the church of Thessalonica, you can go all the way back to the book of Acts chapter 16. And really where the journey begins is in Paul's Macedonian call in Acts 16. Now, he doesn't go to Thessalonica at that point. But it's at that point that God stops Paul from going to a couple of places. Paul was actually going to go around and make his loop that he made in his first missionary journey. But God stopped him and says, nope, you can't go there. Paul thought about going to another place. Nope, you can't go there. And then God shone a light and said, I want you to go over to Macedonia. I've got a call for you. I've got a place I need you to go. I've got some churches I want you to go and talk to. I've got some people I want you to share the gospel. Churches I want you to start. So he goes over there and he begins in Philippi. And the very first place he goes to in Philippi, he ends up getting arrested. He ends up being jailed. But he ends up sharing the gospel while he's in prison. And the Philippian jailer gets saved. And then his whole family gets saved. And you just see this great transformation happen there in Philippi. Well, after he leaves Philippi, he goes to Thessalonica. And he's actually in Thessalonica, get this, for only three weeks. Three weeks. That's not a very long time to start a church. But in three weeks, Paul is able to establish a church in the town of Thessalonica. He begins there and he talks to several people. In fact, he uses Jason's house to be a base for where he begins his ministry. He shares the gospel with him. But within three weeks, he runs into some problems. And eventually, they get rid of him. They want him to go on. So he goes on to another church. But he spent three weeks there. And what's amazing to me is that in three weeks, he was able to share the gospel with enough people that they were able to start a church in that city. In three weeks, Paul made that kind of a difference. Wouldn't you love to be able to make a difference in such a way that in three weeks you change someone's life forever? You can if you tell them about Jesus. You can absolutely change someone's life. It doesn't take three weeks. You can do it in one day. You can do it in one hour. You can change somebody's life forever by what you speak to them. Paul's desire was to speak life into this church, and that's how this church began. And so Paul would write a letter to this church that he started, and he had three things he wanted to reason, he wanted to speak to them, three evidences that they had a godly 
example. So that's what we're going to look at tonight, the three evidences of Thessalonica's godly example. The first thing we see is a prayer of thanksgiving, beginning in verse 2. He says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. There's several things that he touts them for. He, he recognizes. And the first thing is found in verse 3. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. We understand that according to Scripture, it is by faith through grace that we are saved. It is not by any works that we do. But, but we need to understand what God saves us for and what he saves us Unto. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reads like this. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And a lot of people will stop the passage right there and they'll say, aha, it's by faith alone. Absolutely. I 100% agree that we are saved by faith alone. It is 100% in the work of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there at all. Because you've got to read verse 10 that follows verse 9. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So what is Paul saying there? Is Paul trying to make the statement that, hey, you got to work. You got to work. You got to work to earn your salvation. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying you got to work to earn your salvation. What Paul is saying is, is you will work because you're saved. Your life will change. There will be a transformation within you. All of a sudden, you begin to want to serve. You begin to want to do. Why? Because you understand that the calling to be a Christian, a lot of people say, well, it is free to be a Christian. You're right. But it's not free to live as a Christian. Hello? It may have cost Jesus everything to save you, but it will cost you everything to live for him. That's what God calls us to, to good works. Now, if you think I'm kidding, you look over in the book of James, and in James chapter 2, he makes this bold proclamation. He says this in verse 18 of James chapter 2. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. And I'll show you, I'll show thee my faith by my works. Now think about that. Can you show faith by doing no works? Can anybody see your faith? Your faith is expressed in your works. It is expressed in the life change and the event that's happened in your life. He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, he's not saying I'm saved by works. He's saying, but my faith creates in me a desire to work. I love verse 19. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Now, I've often asked people this. You know, here's the truth of the matter. The demons knew who Jesus was. Why do you think they bowed down to him? A lot of people say, oh, well, all I have to do is just believe. Well, even the demons believe and tremble. So there has to be something more to believe. The idea is the word in the Greek language is called pistuo. All right, that's the Greek word for belief. It means more than having natural thoughts about. It means placing one's full and firm faith in that thing to where you trust it absolutely and completely. Many of you don't realize you showed that faith when you came in here tonight, didn't you? You showed that faith. You say, well, how did I show that faith? How many of you trusted the pew to hold you up when you sat down? 
Anybody? Anybody think they were going to fall through? Anybody think you were going to break the pew? You trusted, you had faith that that pew would support you. You trusted, and what did you do? You didn't sit there and... Right? You didn't dilly-dally with it. You just said what? You went and you plopped down in it. And you put all your weight on it. And you trusted in it. That's faith. Faith is putting all of our trust in Jesus, all of our trust in his words. And it creates in us a desire to serve him. It creates in us a desire to get closer to him. Verse 20 goes on. He says, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. That's interesting because somebody says, oh, you know, did you know Martin Luther, the great reformer of the church, he made the statement. He said, wait a minute. I don't like the book of James. Do you know that this is the reason why he did not like the book of James, the great reformer? Not Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther, all right? You need to know who he is. If you're a Christian, you should know who Martin Luther is. Great reformer of the church, separated the Protestants from the Catholics. That's who he was. He was a great man of God, and he said, I don't like the book of James. It is an epistle of straw, is what he called it. And it really came down to this passage right here. He said, I don't like this book because he is contradicting Paul. James is not contradicting Paul. James is completing, along with Paul, exactly what Christ desired in our lives. That once we get saved, we will serve. We will work. We will change. That's all he's saying. In fact, Jesus himself talked about what it meant to be a disciple. He said, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me daily there is a work that goes on in the life of a christian i love verse 21 says was not abraham our father justified by works when he had offered isaac his son upon the altar seest thou how faith wrought in him his works and by works his faith was made perfect please again understand you are not saved by your works you do absolutely nothing to guarantee your spot into heaven but because because of god's great love Because of what God has done for you. Because God has saved you from your sinful past. Because God is keeping you from going to hell. Because God has granted you eternal life. Because God is giving you a place in heaven. Because God has written your name in the Lamb's book of life. You desire to serve him. And he said that's what the church of Thessalonica was doing. They were living that kind of manner. He said I know your work of faith. Number two he said I know your labor of love. He's being thankful. Your labor. Can I be honest with you for a second? Sometimes it is work to love people. Amen? (laughs) Man, I wish I could just tell you it was easy to love everybody, but it's not. Man, I would love to tell you, and he makes a statement, and your labor of love. Why? Because we understand it. Guess what? Let's just go ahead and be honest for a second. There is no hurt like church hurt. Is there? There's no hurt like church hurt. There is no greater hurt than to be hurt by somebody you consider to be a Christian, you consider to be someone that's your friend, you consider somebody that's supposed to love you, that's supposed to be there for you, and then they hurt you. It's a labor of love sometimes. Jesus never said it would be easy, did he? But he did tell us to love the brethren. He did make the statement in 1 John several times. Several times in the epistle of 1 John, he tells them that you've got to love the brethren. He makes a statement. You can't say you love God whom you do not see and say you, love, or you hate your brethren who you can see. He says it's impossible to be that way. 
He said, if you're going to be my child, if you're going to be my follower, you've got to obey my commands. What's one of his commands? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? That means if I don't want them doing it to me, I don't do it to them. But not only does it mean that, it means that if I wish somebody would check on me when I'm hurting, we ought to check on somebody when they're hurting. You see, there's a positive and a negative spin on both aspects. We ought to be the type of Christian that, man, people just say, I just don't know what's up with them, but they love too much. Wouldn't that be awesome? Man, they just love too much. They just, they won't let nobody hurt them. They won't let nobody mess with them. They just love people no matter what. Well, isn't that what Jesus said when he said, love your enemies? And as Christians, we're going to have people that are not going to like us. When you begin to live in the Word of God, you're going to have people that aren't going to like you. When you have committed your faith to Jesus Christ, you're going to have people that aren't going to like you. So it is a labor of love to love them. But he said, the Thessalonians, man, you guys, you guys love each other. They were a tight-knit group. Can I tell you something? When the church loves each other... And I mean really loves each other. And they love each other to a point that nobody can get in between them. Nobody can get in between them. You know what's going to happen? There's going to be more people that want to be a part of that church because they know that you'll fight for them tooth and nail because of your love for them. They'll know it. You think about this. How many of you have ever gone to bat for your child? I mean, all teachers are mean, right? <laughs> School teachers are all going to get up and walk out. No, I'm just, please understand, I'm joking because you think about it. What kid has not made that statement? Teachers don't care for me. Teachers don't like me. And the first thing we do is what? We immediately take our child's side. We immediately want to defend them. We immediately want to go to bat for them. And then we get in there and we meet with the teacher and we find out what? All children lie too. <laughs> right? We immediately, it don't take long to figure that one out. And that whole time we're sitting there, we're, we're ready to go to bat for them. And then all of a sudden that teacher starts talking and that defense starts lowering and lowering and lowering and lowering. And we're looking at that kid going, you did what? Right? You really did that? But we do. We have that defense. Could you imagine if we were like that with our brothers and sisters in Christ? That the moment somebody, you won't believe what so-and-so about it. Man, we immediately put up defense. I'm not listening to it. I'm not going to have any part of it. You're not going to talk about my brother or sister like that. Man, we begin to love. And it is a labor of love. When you begin to love like that, when you begin to put up a guard for one another like that, when we begin to show that kind of love to our community, that we will not be moved towards one another, that we are going to love one another. Even, even when we fail, we will love you. Even when we fall short, we will love you. We will love you enough to help pick you up so that you can get back on the right track. That is a labor of love. That's what the church of Thessalonica was like. Number three, they had a patience of hope. In verse three, again, a labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they had an endurance. There was an endurance what kind of an endurance? Well, they had an endurance to fight for the truth, to stand for the truth. In fact, in the book of Titus, 
Uh, Paul talks about it there in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. He says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The endurance we have to put up with is, guess what? When we get saved, God doesn't immediately transport us to heaven. We are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people say, well, the Bible says you're not supposed to love the world. Well, that's true. You don't love the world. In other words, you don't love the world. You don't love the things that the world offers to you. You look at the book of Ecclesiastes. Man, if you could have riches, how many of you would take it? Riches, popularity, buildings, all kinds of land ventures, wisdom, all kinds of friends, I mean, you could have all these things. He says, man, if you live for those things, vanity of vanities. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes says. It's all vain. The endurance is learning to live in the world but not be of the world. It is learning to be different. It is learning to be separated. It is learning to be who Christ called us to be. It is learning to stand out. To stand out. Wouldn't it be awesome If a complete stranger just walked up to you one day and said, man, I need you to pray for me. You say, well, would a complete stranger? Yeah, they would. Because I've known people to do that. They'll just walk up to you and go, man, I don't know what it is, but something is telling me to come talk to you and ask you to pray for me. I know what's telling you. It's called the Holy Spirit. And when your spirit meets with their spirit, They can sense it, they can see it in you, and they will come to you. Why? Because that's the thing. When you are enduring in this world, when you are living different than this world, when people can tell that there's something in you that is not in them, they want to know what's going on. They want to know what you've got. That's the kind of faith those had in Thessalonica. Now let's get to verse 4. I know every one of y'all was just really just ready to hear this one, right? Y'all, y'all have already seen that one word in there, and y'all were chomping at the bit going, where are you going with this one, brother? All right? Well, let's just not skip it. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election of God. Whew. Y'all ready, aren't you? All right, flip over to Ephesians 1. Let's go ahead and dig in deep. Let's, let's just dig in our heels, all right? Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. You look at that passage, and guess what? Now we don't use two words. Now we don't use elect, and we don't use predestined, right? And every good Southern Baptist goes, Can I tell you, it's in the Bible. Oh, now, we could just skip over it, but I'm not going to do that for your sake because I want to teach you what this is talking about. We need to understand it and not fear it. We don't need to worry when somebody comes up and says, well, I'm a Calvinist. We don't need to worry about those things. The truth of the matter is, is we need to understand what the Scripture teaches us, and the word election and predestination is in there. 
But I want you to understand it from a scriptural basis. I need you to understand what God's Word is trying to teach us on this. A lot of people say, well, we were spotted out from the beginning. Before we were ever created, God chose us. Well, here I want you to understand, they use a word called the tulip. Anybody ever heard of tulip? All right. They use a word called tulip, and it defines their doctrine as, all right, T stands for total depravity. What that basically means is that we are born in sin, we are sinful people, and therefore, because we are sinful people, we are destined to hell because of our sin. Anybody got a problem with that? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No problem with that one whatsoever. All right, let's move on to you, all right? T-U, all right? That means unconditional election. You know what that means? Unconditional election to a Calvinist simply means this. God chose you, but he didn't choose you. From the beginning of the world, he chose a few, and he didn't choose all. That's what unconditional election means. Now, here's my problem with unconditional election. Here's where I have a big issue with it. I'll say this all the time to a Calvinist. I'll say, so what you're telling me is that God chooses those to go to heaven, and he chooses some to go to hell. And they'll go, no, 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 that's not what it is. They'll say he chooses some to go to heaven. Let's think about that for a second, okay? He says, well, no, 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 they choose to go to hell. How many of you have ever played kickball? Anybody ever played kickball? How many of you were chosen last? <laughs> I'm glad y'all are truthful in here tonight, all right? Now, you think about it. If one person says, I pick you, and the other person picks you, what does that mean? That means that because they didn't choose you, they chose you to be on the other team. If God doesn't choose you to be saved, then guess what? He chooses you to go to hell. I don't believe in a God that does that. I don't believe that God is so loving and so caring and so kind that he just said from the beginning of foundation, I've already said you're going to hell. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. That's not my God. That's not Christ-like. That's not love. And the problem is, is when you say something like that, you're basically saying God didn't love the world. He only loved the ones he chose. That's not what my Bible teaches. Well, that's unconditional election. Let's look at L, limited atonement. Limited atonement simply means that Christ died only for the elect. So you got to change John 3.16 now for God so loved the world. God didn't love the world if he didn't elect them. God only loves the elect. In fact, I had a Calvinist one time, that's what he told me. He goes, yeah, that's really not the world. And I went, it's the word cosmos. That's the Greek word for world. Everybody in it. Are you kidding me? Are you changing scripture now to fit your theology? Limited atonement means that God only died for a few people, not everybody. Because they said if God died for everybody, then he failed if everybody doesn't get saved. That doesn't make God to failure. That makes us foolish for not accepting it. Let's move on. Irresistible grace. That's I. Once God calls you, you can't resist. Really? Once God, in other words, God makes me a robot. I don't choose anything. The whosoever of the Bible, every one of them's got to be thrown out. So I've got to be thrown out. There is no whosoever. It's whosoever's elect. Man, you got to start changing all of Scripture to fit their doctrine. It's it's. It's incredibly moronic. I'll just call it like it is. I've talked to them. They look at you like you're the moron, but it's not true. I mean, you've got to change all the Scripture to fit their belief, and it's just wrong. 
Now, the last one is simply this. It's perseverance of the saints. All right? That simply means that those who are saved will persevere to the end. I agree with that. That's Matthew 24, 13. So I can agree with them on two points. It's the other three, their main three, that I can't agree with. Here's what I believe. I believe that God elected that man would be changed forever, that the process of salvation is what God is talking about there, that when God justifies you, he's going to sanctify you, and eventually he'll glorify you, and he'll change your life forever. That's what happens when you're elect. That's what happens when God begins to change that life in you. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm going to go to the other side. I'm not an Arminianist. And some of y'all don't even know what an Arminianist is, do you? You're like, I just believe in freedom. Well, that's good. That's good. I believe in freedom too, but I also believe in intelligence. All right? Arminian also have a flower. It's called the daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. They believe you can lose your salvation. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. I just believe there's a lot of people who believe they have it that don't really have it. Here's what I believe. I believe Scripture teaches both. We're chosen and we're free. God died for us, and we have to choose to follow him. I believe in free will, but I also believe the scripture teaches predestination. And here's the thing. I love it. The truth is, in our finite minds, we cannot comprehend how those two go together. But in God's infinite mind, he sees it perfectly. They're both in scripture. Why well, try to fight it? Here's the way I look at it. God started the process in me, there's no doubt. If the Holy Spirit hadn't spoke to me, I'd have never gotten saved. But I also know that I decided one day when I realized that my life was not what it needed to be, I said, Lord Jesus, take me. Take me all. And I gave my life to him. Scripture is replete with these words. And we need to understand Paul was thankful for what God had done in the church of Thessalonica. Number two, let's look at the power of transformation. Look at verse 5. For our gospel came not unto you in the word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we are among you for your sake. But ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye are in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Isn't that amazing? He says, our gospel came unto you not only in word, but also in power and of the Holy Ghost. Ghost. Think about it. Acts 1 8 said what? But you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You know, my life verse really speaks towards this. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And I love what Paul says here. He says, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Can I tell you something? I'm, I can maybe change your mind. I might be smart enough that I could change your mind. But I can never change your heart. There's only one who can do that. I can stand up here and preach the most oratorical message ever known to man. In fact, if you think about it, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, guess where he had been before he was in Corinth? He was in Athens at the Areopagus. And Paul had preached one of the most magnificent sermons and very few got saved. Did you know that? 
Very few got saved. And you know what Paul did? The next time when he went into Corinthians, he vowed to only preach Christ and the crucifixion. Because he knew that no matter how much oratory skill he had, no matter how well he could speak, he could only change minds. He could not change hearts. And so when he went into Corinth, he was desiring to see the Holy Spirit move in them through power and change their lives forever. That's what he's telling the Thessalonians. For our gospel didn't come to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. Can I tell you, there is a huge difference when you see somebody that is filled with the Holy Ghost, can't you? Man, you ought to be able to tell a difference in them. You ought to be able to tell a difference in the way they worship. You ought to be able to tell a difference in the way they live, in the way they speak, in the things they do. Man, the power just exuded out of Paul as he shared the message with them. He says, and in much assurance, as you know, what manner of men we were among you for your sake. In other words, you were able to watch our lives. You were able to see how we lived. You were able to see our testimony. You see, I wonder what the people you work with would say about you. Have you ever thought about that? What would the people you work with say about you? What would the people that live with you say about you? What kind of testimony do you carry? What do people really think about you? Now, some people go, I don't care what people think about me. Well, that's usually because people don't think much about you, right? Just being honest. But I mean, let's just be honest. I, what do I want people to see in me? I want people to see Holy Ghost fire on me. I want people to see in me a man that loves Jesus Christ. I want people to see in me that I love people, that I love people who don't know Christ, and that I love everybody. That's what I want people to see in me. That's what I want my testimony to be. What about you? What do people see in you? If I were to ask the people around you, what is this person like? What would they say? Would they have good words to say about you? There are a couple people here, man, that people speak so very highly of. Did you know that? I love my brother Ray over here. People speak very highly of Brother Ray over here. You know why? Because he is just, I mean, before he had his new heart, he was still coming to our prayer time. And he was up there and pouring out his heart and just exuding the Holy Spirit in his life. And you know what? He's got an amazing testimony when people talk about him. Brother Tim over here, look at him. Got cancer. He's in church. He's like, I don't give a rip about cancer. Man's going to Honduras sick, telling people about Jesus. Man, I don't hear anything bad about Brother Tim. You know why? Because he's a man of God that loves Jesus, and he wants everybody to know it. You see, that's the kind of testimony I want. I hope it's the kind of testimony you want. The kind of testimony that when people talk about you, all they can say are good things about you. You see, when it, came to the, when it came to Daniel and they wanted to find something wrong with Daniel, what did they have to do? They had to create something. They had to go to the king and say, hey, don't let anybody pray to anybody except you for a month. And they knew what Daniel was going to do. They couldn't find anything wrong with Daniel, so they created something. So that when he went up there and he prayed, they ended up throwing him in a lion's den. And you know what happened? He just prayed while he was in a lion's den. God shut the mouths of the lions, and then what happened? The very ones that set him up to kill him, they got thrown in there, and they got eat up. Why? Because God honors those who are faithful. And oh, what a testimony they have. 
Go on, verse 6. He says, for you became followers of us. I love the word followers here in the Greek language. It's mimete. It's where we get the word mimics or imitators. Man, how many of us as Christians can say like Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Now, please understand what that means. Basically, what Paul was saying was, look, I am a Christ-like example. I live according to the Word of God, and I follow the image of Christ. And you, if you follow me, if you do what I do, you'll see Christ in your life as well. To mimic, to imitate means to basically be able to look in the mirror. When we look in the mirror, we ought to see Christ in us. Man, what a change that would be. We ought to be able to tell others, follow me as I follow Christ. He goes on, he says this, he says, and having received the word in much affliction, you realize as Christians, guess what? We're going to be afflicted when we live for Christ. Paul even told him, he said, look, if you're going to live godly, he told Timothy, if you're going to live godly, expect persecution, expect difficulties. If you're going to live for Christ, you're going to suffer, you're going to have hardships, you're going to go through difficult times. Not many people would sign up for that, but Timothy did. He goes on, and with joy of the Holy Ghost. Isn't it awesome that when Peter and them were beat for their faith, they walked out of there excited and thanking God that they could be punished for Christ? Man, how many times have you told somebody about Jesus and said, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job? Man, you ought to be like, man, I might lose my job, but I told somebody about Jesus. Man, I'm excited. We don't need to worry about the things of this world. We need to worry about the things that we carry on with us. We need to be focused on those things. We need to have the joy of the Holy Ghost, even in the midst of affliction. I love Paul. Paul, when he was arrested in Philippi, what did he do? You know, could you imagine Paul in jail? You know, and just, just think about it from, from movies that we see today. And he has that little cast iron cup, and he's just ringing it across the bars. You know, it says he was singing hymns, but we like to think he's in there going, nobody knows the troubles I go through, right? That's, no, it said he was singing hymns and praising God. In fact, he was praising God in such a way, it got the attention of the Philippian jailer, but it got the attention of Almighty God, who shook the walls, opened the doors, and they didn't leave. Because they knew God had a work for them to do while they were in there. Man, with joy of the Holy Ghost. So that ye were in temples to all who believe in Macedonia and Achaia. In other words, Paul says, this church, the church here in Thessalonica, the church he was there for three weeks, is the blueprint for a good church. Now, he didn't say the blueprint for a perfect church. But it was a blueprint for other churches to follow after. In fact, when you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and he's talking to the church of Corinth, he's also talking to the church of Thessalonica there. And he's talking about how they were willing to give in the midst of their difficult times. That they were willing to give above and beyond what they could give even in the midst of their hardships. Thessalonica was an example to all the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. In other words, when they talked about that church, they said, oh, that's, that's Thessalonica. Man, how awesome would it be that Hillcrest be that kind of example. How awesome would it be for people to say, man, you want to know a godly church in our community, that's Hillcrest. That's a blueprint. That's who we want to be like. Well, if that's true, what does that mean? It means we better get ready. We better make changes. 
We better be right with God. And we better be filled with the Holy Ghost if we want to be that. And man, I hope we will. I pray we will. I want them to see the power of transformation, not just in a few lives, but in every single one of our lives. Number three, the power of testimony. Look at verse eight. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. It sounded out. Man, in other words, what Paul said, I didn't have to tell people what God was doing in your church because what was going on in your church Everybody already knew. How amazing is that? Man, how amazing would it be for you to go to work tomorrow and be like, man, did you hear what happened in our church? And somebody goes, yes, I did. Yes, I did. And you're sitting back going, did you, did you come? Did you, were you there? No, man, everybody's talking about what happened in your church. Man, that's what was going on in Thessalonica. They're like, man, it was spreading abroad all over Macedonia. Please understand, they didn't have text messages. They didn't have phones to call up their friends and tell them. This message was spreading because God was moving in such a powerful way. They wanted to be a part of it. Man, when there was a big thing that was going on in Burlington, North Carolina, they had this big revival that went on for several months. And they were seeing thousands of people saved. Churches were canceling services to go up there just to get a glimpse, just to be a part of it, just to see if God would touch them so that when they came back to their church, God would continue to move. They wanted to see something great happen. They wanted to be a part of something amazing. And that's what was going on in Thessalonica. They're like, dude, you heard what's going on in that church. Let's go check it out. Let's go see what God is doing. And man, it was spreading far and wide. It was spreading by all those that would come and take part. We understand that's what God has called us to do. Verse 9, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Thessalonica was an idol-worshiping city. But because of the message of Jesus Christ, they put their idols away. They cast them aside. They got away from all the way they had been living. You see, you got to understand that that's the way a lot of churches were founded. A lot of churches were founded by people who were worshiping idols, but they got away from worshiping those idols. Now, I don't know if you're like me. A lot of times I hear that word idol, and I think, man, how foolish could people be that they would worship like a golden calf, or they would make a little statue, and they would bow down to it. Well, can I tell you something? An idol didn't just come in a, in a physical form. You see, if we're not careful, our idol can be money. Our idols can be our jobs. Our idols, you ready for this? Our idols can even be our children when we try to live through them. And you can put all kinds of things before God. And if God is truly first in your life, guess what? Nothing comes between you. He said, these guys were turning over a new leaf. They were changed. They were transformed. They were different. And then in verse 10, he says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. He said, man, your church is ready. Thessalonica was ready for Jesus to come back. Are you? If Jesus showed up in the clouds, how many of you go, Wait, I got one more thing I need to do, Lord. How many of you are looking? How many of you are waiting? 
Acts chapter 1, when Jesus went up before them, what did he say? The angels told him, said, what are you staring up for? The one who went that way, he's going to come back the same way. He's coming back in the clouds. And I'm here to tell you, when he comes back, you're going to know it. Because if you're his, you're going. He's just going to call you up. We're going to see that when we get to chapter 4. He's going to call you up and you're going to go. Whether you're ready or not. Some of you think you're going to go when you ain't. I hope you get ready tonight. So that if he does call you, you will go. You see, here's the thing. He says they were waiting. They were excited. They were ready to see Jesus return. Man, there was something different about Thessalonica. There was something completely different about that church. There was something wonderful that was happening in that church. Man, that, that is what I long for so much. I long to be a part of a church that the community sees what's going on. And the community wants to just get a taste of it. And they know that if, if there's one place they can find Jesus, they can find him here. If there's one place they know they're going to hear the truth, they can find it here. If there's one place they know they're going to feel love, they can find it here. If there's one place they know that they can serve, they can find it here. If there's one place they know that this church is different. If we want to be that kind of church, then guess what? Every one of us needs to be different. Every one of us needs to be ready. Every one of us needs to be watching and waiting. Every one of us needs to be setting the example, giving off a righteous testimony. Every one of us needs to be ready. What example are you setting? 